Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Al-Maghrib Live Virtual Seminars. For those who want the classroom experience and the comfort of the home all at once, Al-Maghrib Virtual Seminars are live online sessions taking everything great about on-site classes, the immediate feedback, interactions, and the company of fellow students and bring it to you in real time. You can study and interact with your favorite instructors from anywhere in the world at the time zone that works for you. So the Battle of Badr took place in the second year of Hijrah. The Battle of Uhud took place the year after that, right? So immediately after the Battle of Uhud took place. In the second battle, the Battle of Uhud, they came with 3,000 fighters. So in the Battle of Badr, they came with 1,000, and as we said, they lost so many of their leaders. Now in the Battle of Uhud, they came with 3,000 fighters, and many of the children of those who were killed are now coming back to revenge their father's deaths. So you have, for example, Khalid ibn al-Walid, who's coming back because his father was killed in Badr, right? And you had Abu Jahl, who was killed in Badr as well, Ikrima ibn Abi Jahl as well, some of the key leaders of the Mushrikeen army. It took place on the 23rd of Shawwal, 23rd of Shawwal, third year of Hijrah, as we said. Reasons for the battle, the reasons that they were fighting, number one, they're fighting for religious reasons, obviously Mushrikeen versus Muslims, but there's other reasons too. Another reason is their social honor. The Quraysh were like untouchable. Nobody touches Quraysh. And so everybody had this, you know, like Quraysh is untouchable. Nobody can hurt them and so on and so forth. So now that they were hurt in Badr to maintain their status amongst the other Arabs and so on, they had, you know, again, their ego and whatnot, their social honor. So that's number two. Number three, for economic reasons. Right? The Battle of Badr took place where they were cutting off the caravan and you know, to maintain their economic uh, strength and to be able to go left and right, any, any direction that they wanted without anybody stopping them. Here they're trying to establish that in the Battle of Uhud. Fourthly, for political reasons, the Quraysh were the leaders of the Arabs. They were so respected amongst the Arabs that if, like for example, you couldn't just walk through the desert without getting into fights with all these different tribes. But if a person was walking through the desert and then the tribes, they were about to attack someone or hurt someone, people would say, leave them alone, this is Quraysh. If someone was from Quraysh, they had this protective status, people were afraid of them and people respected them at the same time. So they were leaders amongst the Arabs and now with the Prophet ﷺ winning in the Battle of Badr, they had to maintain this political power. In the Battle of Uhud, there was a shura whether to fight inside the city or not. And we spoke about shura, and now you're getting glimpses of it coming up again and again. The Prophet ﷺ gathered the companions, asked them whether they'd like to fight inside the city or outside the city. Outside the city is like Jabal Uhud, mountain Uhud. So those companions, عنهم, as we knew in the Battle of Badr, in the Battle of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ, it was voluntary, and they didn't know that they were going to go out for a battle. In the Battle of Uhud though, you can imagine throughout time, the Battle of Badr is known as like one of the most important and decisive victories for the Muslims. Imagine that you were living with the Prophet ﷺ and you didn't get the opportunity to participate in Badr. So everybody's like, oh, if we get a chance, we'll fight, we'll show them, we'll, you know. And, and there's all this talk. And so they didn't want to fight inside the city. They wanted to go outside of the city to meet the mushrikeen on like an open plain to show their strength and so on. However, the Prophet ﷺ, in his shura, his opinion was that they should fight 
inside the city. It's more protective inside the city. And they insisted to go out. Now notice in the shura, the Prophet ﷺ has an opinion, but they're still going back and forth with him. In the end, the Prophet ﷺ, he took their shura. They insisted to fight outside at the Battle of Uhud, on the plains of Uhud, where the mountain is, their backs like to the mountain and so on. And he went inside his home to put on his armor. When he came out, he had, you know, during that time, the, the Sahaba had differed, you know, they were saying to themselves, you're forcing him to do something that he doesn't want to do, and, and, you know, that's not his opinion. And so when he came out, the companions, عنهم, they said, we apologize, you know, for what we said before, we'd like to fight inside the city now. And so this statement of the Prophet ﷺ, a huge leadership lesson that you have here. It does not befit a prophet that once he's put on his armor that he would take it off until Allah has decided between him and his enemy. Meaning that the decision was made, now there's no going back on this decision. And so the reason I said it's a leadership lesson is like very often you have a leader who decides something and then once halfway through their decision then something happens and then they're like, hey, you know that project I told you to work on that takes like 50 pages and you're now done 25 pages? Just scrap that. Now what kind of uh, respect do you have for a leader that keeps doing things like that? Every time he tells you to do something, he comes a few days later and says, don't do it anymore. And so sometimes a leader gets to the point, there's a time for shura, and once the shura time has ended, at that point, now it's time for action. And it's not time for shura. Shura actually um, delays the people after that. Let me give you just an example of how to do that. If you're in an organization and you're doing shura amongst each other, this is what you would do. You tell your, your group they're doing shura. Maybe you're doing it by email. You'd say something like this. Brothers and sisters, you know, here's a report that I need shura on. Shura will expire on Thursday at 1 p.m. What does that mean, shura? Well, you know, normally people don't say anything until you establish it. After you establish it, then they're like, oh, I had an opinion, I don't think we should do it. People like that, you should slap, right? Slap in their shoulder. But you tell them, if you're very clear when the shura expires, you're giving them a good time, four days, five days to respond, maybe even before that ex expiration date, you'd say, hey, I haven't gotten any feedback yet, it's going to expire on Thursday at 1 p.m. Once it expires, there is no room for anybody to speak after that. Because imagine that you start executing something. Let's suppose you went to a printer, you're going to be printing something. You're halfway, like maybe the postcards that you're printing are at the printer. And someone comes on Saturday and says, there's a spelling mistake and we shouldn't do this and, and we should take this back. How much money is going to be lost? How much confusion is going to happen? So the person who's at the printer will go back to the leader and say, so should we print it or should we not print it? Everything gets delayed because someone is trying to do shura after the shura time is over. You see what I'm saying? So you give time for shura. Once the shura time is done, absolutely positively, there's no shura after that. And so a person, you've put on the armor and you don't take it off until the war is over. Let what happened happens. And if, even if everything collapses and their spelling mistake went everywhere, let everybody know that next time, do shura during the shura time. Let the pain of the situation affect them so that they don't uh, and do that again. When the Muslims went out to the battlefield, they passed by, there was um, a blind man, he had a garden there, and the Muslims went out like after Fajr, or very early in the morning. Allah it might have even been before Fajr. They went out very early, so nobody, you know, the mushrikeens, they're coming for the, for the army, 3,000 fighters and so on, they went out, and they, had, they didn't walk down a normal path, they went through some gardens. So there was a hypocrite in Medina, 
that, you know, as an army comes out, you have like a thousand of the Muslim fighters coming, they're going to walk through a garden, the garden is going to be like wrecked, right, with all those people walking by, animals and so on and so forth, the garden is going to be wrecked. And so this blind man came out, and he got so angry at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I mean, he's very vulgar, and, um, and saying, no, I don't give you permission to walk through my garden, get away from my garden, and so on and so forth. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, there's actually like a benefit that you get here, is that in the Battle of Uhud, even though his garden was going to get wrecked, obviously this is in defense of the whole Muslim community. And he's still focused on his garden. And so in times like that, the benefit that comes to the whole community is more important than the benefit that comes to one person, right? Maslahatul Aam, it's called Maslaha. Maslaha is like a benefit that comes to all of the people is more important than the benefit that comes to one person, right? Than the more specific people. A lot of times when there's all these like human rights type of discussions in the newspapers, sometimes they, there will be people who, they're setting up a dam to create electricity for like an entire city, a million people, but somebody lives in the area that's going to be flooded once the dam goes. And then they go in the papers and they're like, no, I don't agree to this dam being built. Like, just back up a little bit. <laughs> All right? It's just one guy and his house is going to get wrecked. How many people are going to benefit from the dam going up? Like a million people, right? For generations and generations. Obviously, it's clear. And, and people get rallied up. They're like, yeah, they're destroying his home. Who do they think they are and whatnot? But in Islam, that general benefit that goes to community, obviously, it's a mujtahid, someone who in a political position understands all the different angles, would, would look at all the different angles, but in general, the maslaha, the benefit that goes to the community, the larger community, is more important than the benefit that goes to an individual. As we see in this battle of Uhud, the Prophet ﷺ walked through his garden. On the way to the battle of Uhud, the Muslims are a thousand fighters, and we said that amongst them are munafiqeen. And so Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, which we spoke about, was like the head of the munafiqeen. On the way to Uhud, he said that the Prophet ﷺ didn't listen to me, and he listened to these young chaps, right? You guys say chaps, right? He listened to these young chaps, and he didn't listen to us, we're more senior, we're like the leaders and so on. And he said, I don't agree to go fighting out at the, battle of, uh, at the plains of Uhud. He said, I'm going back. So he turned his back on the Prophet ﷺ on the way to Uhud, and with about 300 fighters, 300 fighters, he walked away from the battlefield. So now you're talking about like one-third of the army he's leaving with. So Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, actually uh, a very important point, the Prophet ﷺ never killed any of the munafiqeen. He never killed them, never executed them, and he'd always say, Umar radiallahu anhu, very often in the hadith, when these munafiqeen would say something, Umar would always say to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission to kill this munafiq. Okay? And you're familiar with it. And I know that someone's going to laugh when I say that. But I always say that, was Umar joking when he said that? Was he joking? Now imagine the Prophet ﷺ, if he had yes, kill him. What would Umar do? He'd kill him. And killing is not a joking matter. I think, you know, when, once you see death, then you don't, it's not, you're not going to laugh at it. Right, I saw once a public execution. A person had murdered. You know, they, they execute people in Texas and stuff like that, but they do it behind doors. But you go into other countries, if someone killed someone, they'll execute in public. When you see an execution, it's no joke. Right? And Umar radiallahu anhu is like, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission to kill this person. And the Prophet said to Umar radiallahu anhu, he said often that he wouldn't kill them, even though they deserve to be killed. 
he wouldn't kill any of them so that no one would ever say that Muhammad kills his followers. And so it would not also become like a, a sunnah people, like every time they were suspicious of someone in the community, they'd go and kill that person. Right? May Allah subhanahu wa protect us. So Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, he left with the 300 of the fighters. With 300 of the fighters and now the Muslims, they're extremely angry at the munafiqeen. Like they're about to be attacked by 3,000 fighters. Right? It's three to one. Each fighter is going to have to fight three people. And now because the munafiqeen have left, one third of them has left, a party of them was angry with the munafiqeen and they wanted to fight the munafiqeen. So it would have been Muslims versus Munafiqeen. Before the Battle of Uhud, a fight would have broke out between them. And another group said, just leave them alone, let them go. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we read the verse earlier, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَمَا لَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِي أَتَيْنِ وَاللَّهُ أَرْكَسَمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا That why are you divided over the Munafiqeen, even though Allah has turned them back because of like the sins that they have accumulated. That are you trying to guide those people whom Allah has misguided? And so they're misguided and the, and the believers, this Quran was revealed and they left them, right? They let them go. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That if they, if they did join, like imagine there's 300 fighters and they're munafiqeen, what would they do in the battle? They're just going to create confusion or they might even during the battle, retreat and run away. And that would make everybody feel like retreating and running away in the battle. So it's better that they leave from the beginning and that you have less believers fighting. You have uh, a few number of them, but all of them are committed to the battle all the way till the end. There was three liwas on the day of Uhud. One of them was given to the muhajireen. One of them was given to the Aus, and one of them was given to the Khazraj. Aus and the Khazraj. The Prophet ﷺ was giving speech before the Battle of Uhud. In his speech, ﷺ, we mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ, as a leader, a leader should be motivating the followers. And the Prophet ﷺ would give the speech before the battle to these 600 fighters. And amongst the things that he he mentioned in his speech, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, was to follow the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To stay away from disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, victory or defeat is very much connected to a believer's sincerity to following the commandments of Allah and staying away from the sins. So Umar radiallahu anhu, for example, in the battle of uh, when Alexandria in Egypt was being conquered, for a long time Alexandria was under siege and the Muslims hadn't conquered it. And Umar radiallahu anhu sent a letter to those Muslims this is after the death of the Prophet He said that this must be because of some sin that we've done. And so when they weren't successful, it was, they related it to first and foremost to their disobedience if there was disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they would need to correct the disobedience first. And this is in the, in the speech of the Prophet ﷺ. He told them to be energetic and patient. So to have like this nashat. Nashat is like uh, to be energetic. And the Prophet ﷺ, in his speech told them to not disagree amongst themselves. Because it's evil and that argumentation if in a battlefield you can't have people disagreeing. Once they disagree, you have people, two people going in, in two different directions. 
And when that happens, nobody goes anywhere. Imagine like a table. If two people are holding a table and one of them says, let's put the table here. And the other person says, let's put the table here. Where does the table go? It goes nowhere. If two people are pulling in different directions, the table just, the, it like, it neutralizes both. And that's the problem with the disagreement. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا فَتَفْشَلُوا وَتَذْهَبَ رِيحُكُمْ وَاصْبِرُوا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا Don't disagree. فَتَفْشَلُوا Otherwise, you'll lose وَتَذْهَبَ رِيحُكُمْ And your wind will go away. So that strength of the believers will go away if they disagree. Here's a critical point about disagreement, kind of like from the etiquettes of disagreement, is you can have another opinion. Nobody said that one opinion, the Amir's opinion, has to be accepted by people. People are human beings, they can have difference of opinion. However, if it's an issue of ijtihad, and most issues are, like rarely is it not an issue of ijtihad. Everybody likes to escalate their issues to the highest level. This is tawheed. My, my opinion is the message of Islam of the highest level. But it's usually not, right? This is a difference of opinion issue. On a difference of opinion issue, if there's like two opinions and the hakim, which is the ruler, chooses one of the opinion, everybody has to follow even if they hold the other opinion. Okay? Understand that. This will solve your Ramadan moon sighting problems. Okay? So the Ramadan moon sighting problem, this is the issue right here, is because people don't follow leadership. That's the problem. That's, the issue is not when was the moon sighted, how was it sighted, who sighted it, which country sighted it. All of that talk, that's lay people trying to become khalifas. They're all trying to do fatwa. And in one family, if let's say you have six family members, how many muftis do you have? Six of them. You have six muftis inside a family of six people. So mother's fasting this day, son's fasting that day, this guy's fasting. Everybody is like making up their own opinion. And the whole misunderstanding is that you have to follow a leader. And because it's an issue of had difference of opinion. If the leader chooses something, leader chooses something, then you follow the leader even if you disagree. And I said if it's an issue of ijtihad, meaning there's a valid disagreement. So let's say, for example, let's say the leader goes <laughs> I was gonna say, according to calculations. He goes according to calculations. You disagree with calculations. Okay, I'm not going to go into the issue, but just something to provoke you. <laughs> something to provoke you. The leader has, and he's knowledgeable, and you know, he's a righteous person, and, and, and after all the difference of opinion, he decides to go according to calculations. What do you normally do at that stance? You go find yourself another leader, right? Someone who agrees with your opinion. That's usually what people do. They're not following the leader. They're following themselves, looking for someone to give them the stamp of approval. If this person chose, it's a valid difference of opinion. He chose a valid opinion, and now he's going with it. And he asked scholars, and there's people of knowledge. They backed it up. If the community only followed leadership on a valid opinion, there would be no confusion. The problem is that... They're not following the leader in a situation like that, and so then there will continue to be confusion. There will continue to be like this distress and so on and so forth until someone comes where people start following that leadership, and then there's no problem. All right? Hope I didn't confuse you too much. The Prophet ﷺ would organize the saf. The saf is the line, as we mentioned in the Battle of Badr, where he was pulling people back and, and so on and so forth. The people on the front line. It's very similar to like an American football team. 
not your football team. You guys are all like skinny and stuff like that. <laughs> An American football team where they put the linebackers. Those are like the huge guys right at the front. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those huge guys that defend like the quarterback and whatnot. You've got um, faster, um, skinnier fighters that might go in the back lines when it's hand-to-hand -hand combat, but the first guys are the guys that rush. And so the Prophet said, based on a person's like body shape, they'd either come forward or they'd go back, right? And so the Prophet would line them up like that because they're going to be rushing, they're going to be using arrows, they're going to be using spears, and so on. But this is interesting. A lot of you might have the question, what kind of weapons did they use? What kind of weapons did they use? They used spears. They used arrows. The first weapon that they would use would be the arrows. That's the first weapon they use. Arrows is first. So from a distance, you know, you have a whole group of archers. They, you might have seen dramatizations of that. They all sit down, you get like 500 archers, and they all shoot at the same time. They all shoot, like 500 arrows go up, and it becomes a rainfall of arrows down, and it'll, you know, take out people. They would have to take their shields, so they're also defending with shields, and they have armor. They put their shields down and crouch down and, and, and cover themselves with the shield. Next weapon that's used is the spear. So once the army comes closer, it's not effective to use arrows against them now, so they start using spears. And that's why you see like Wahshi was a professional spear, right? Wahshi, we're going to talk about Wahshi after. And Aisha radiallahu anha is saying that the Ahbash that were like dancing in the masjid, they were actually uh, using spears. So they were, like I was saying, it's like a military pattern. They're doing it with spears. And then once the spears, once the army comes closer than that, then they start using swords and like hand-to-hand -hand combat. Their swords are extremely sharp. Extremely, extremely, extremely sharp. To give you an example, I, I, I researched a little bit about these uh, Japanese swords. What are the Japanese swords called? Like the, the samurai sword, the katana, right? Those swords, if you were to buy like a real one, they're illegal, but if you were to buy a real one, not the ones that you see in the stores, those fake things, envelope openers and stuff like that. <laughs> A real katana sword, I think, costs about $15,000, right? A real one. And it's so sharp that you could, like, say, you throw up a baseball, and with the sword, as the baseball is falling, you tap it with the sword, and it'll cut the baseball in half, right? And you can cut through wood, you can cut through, you'd have, like, metal, and so it's very, very sharp sword, right? So understanding a sword like that, the Prophet said Allah, some of the companions, they had these swords, they gave name to their swords. So they were definitely, you know, when it came to swords, they, they knew their swords. And you'll see often, like the Prophet I believe it was Ali radiallahu anhu, didn't have anything to give his wife as a, like a dowry, but yet the Prophet said he had a sword and the Prophet he gave his sword as dowry. Because it's very valuable, these swords. So the Prophet Actually, before the battle began, Abu Sufyan and the Mushrik army, they had arrived, right? So the Muslims, if you see Medina, here's Medina, right? And they're coming from Mecca. They're coming from the direction of Mecca. Uhud is like on the other side of Medina. So the Muslims left inner city and went with their backs to Uhud. So the Mushrikeen basically, they like passed the inner city and they went to meet the Muslims on the outsides of Medina, outskirts. Today, about a walk from Masjid Nabawi to Uhud is about an hour walk. About an hour walk. So Abu Sufyan, in the beginning of the battle, this is a strategy that they had. They would divide the Muslims. 
So Abu Sufyan went to the Aus and Khazraj and, say, and said to them that our battle is not with you, it's with the Muhajireen. We have no concern to fight you or kill you people or anything like that. So just leave us and our brothers from the Muhajireen. It's just between us and them. And obviously the Aus and Khazraj, they're not going to have any of that. He's trying to divide between them and they're not going to have any of that. Of course they're going to defend the Prophet It's more of the issue of divide and conquer, correct? And the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Al-Ahzab, like the next battle that we're going to be talking about, Ahzab, the Khandaq, it's also known as the Battle of Al-Ahzab. In that battle, the Prophet ﷺ was doing a similar strategy, meaning having one of the people, you know, teaming up with them so that they would leave the battle and divide the army so that they could focus on fighting this part of the army and so on. But yet, the Muhajireen in the Battle of Al-Khandaq, Prophet ﷺ wanted to give these people X amount of dates of the crops. Like basically they came for money. He's like, we'll give you money if you'll just leave the army. And the Aus and Khazraj said that, Ya Rasulullah, we never gave them during Jahiliyyah, before we became Muslim, we never gave them dates unless they paid for it or they were our guests. And he said, now that Allah has blessed us with Islam, we'll never give them those dates. We'd rather fight them. And the Prophet allowed that and, and you know, they, they maintained in the, in the battle. After the battle began, this is the famous story where the Prophet said, remember we're talking about the swords. Imagine having the sword of the Prophet Like this is the battle of Uhud, and the Prophet has a sword, and you get to fight with the sword of the Prophet How cool is that? So the Prophet raised his sword and said, who will fight with my sword? Right? Who will take my sword to fight with it? So all the companions, they raised their hands and they're like, me, me, I'll take it, I'll take it. Everybody wants to take the sword of the Prophet And then he put the sword down and you know, they put their hands down as well. And then the Prophet raised the sword again and he said, who will take it with its right? Who will fulfill the rights of the sword? Even the sword has rights. It's the Prophet so nobody just takes it and then doesn't fight properly or something like that. If you're going to take the sword, you have to take it with its right. So the companions, they didn't raise their hand. And there's a companion amongst the Ansar named Abu Dujana. Abu Dujana, radiallahu anhu, he said, Ya Rasulullah, what's its right? All right, so this is where it gets intense. <laughs> you know, when you, uh, uh, the only thing I can compare it, compare it to for everybody here is uh, your spoon. When you stick it in ice cream, it bends. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The metal bends because it's cheap metal and stuff like that, right? The Prophet said, you would fight with it until the metal bends. How would the metal bend? By the number of skulls it comes in contact with. <laughs> so Abu Dujana anhu, said, I'll fulfill its rights. So Abu Dujana went up. He had like a red bandana. And he cov- you know, covered his head. They had very long hair. Tied up his hair, took the sword of the Prophet and started strutting arrogantly amongst the companions. Saying, look, I got the sword. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. You didn't get it either. So he started showing off to the other companions. Remember I said the spirit of competition? So now it's the battle of Uhud and he's showing off to them and making them jealous. You didn't get the sword. You didn't get the sword. And then the Prophet said, this is a walk hated by Allah and His Messenger, except in places like this. Except in places like this. So the companions, it makes them, yes, it's a jealousy, but it's a good jealousy. It's a jealousy that encourages them that, you know, next time I'm going to get the sword. 
and so on. So that was Abu Dujana radiallahu anhu from the Ansar. Once the battle began, the Muslims are 600 and the mushrikeen are 3,000. When the mushrikeen come out to the battle, they come out with drums and their women. So their women are there on the battlefield and they come out with drums. The, the reason their women are there is so that they'll feel ashamed to run away. If someone's family is on the battlefield and they're fighting and they feel like retreating, they'll remember, oh, their wives are here and so on and so forth. They can't be running away and, leave and abandoning their women, right? So their women are there and the women are singing. It's like, you know, when people go to war, there's all these songs that are, you know, women singers, divas. (laughs) They start singing on the battlefield. And they start beating their drums to, like, pump them up and and so on and so forth. The male fighters from the Mushrik army. The Muslims, when a battle would begin, I don't believe it happened in the Battle of Uhud here, but normally in a Muslim battle, the Amir says, Allahu Akbar, and the army responds with, Allahu Akbar. So you can imagine, like, how many thousands of fighters, fighters, mujahideen, how many of them saying Allahu Akbar at the same time? So they're singing songs, and then the Muslim fighters say Allahu Akbar in unison. And I don't think it can be emulated in an Islamic conference, what that would sound like, right? Muslim fighters, and this could be the day they become shaheed, saying Allahu Akbar all at the same time. So you can compare the two. What kind of, like, when they say Allahu Akbar, the type of chills that will go down the other sides. So this is kind of like the, the scene. The battle begins, the battle of Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ, there's a mountain called the Mountain of Archers. It's more like a hill. And if you go to Medina these days, you'll see it, and you might imagine it to be very big. However, I believe, because it's been like 1,400 years, a lot of time people they'll think that things still survived all these years. 1,400 years, obviously, erosion and so on and so forth. This is a very small hill now, but I'm sure it was much larger at the time of the Prophet Alright, so this is basically what you're looking at. Here's, let's say this is Uhud. This is Uhud. And I'm just, this is not the exact picture of Uhud, obviously, right? You understand that. Here's the Muslim army. And then here is like a hill. Here's the hill. So these are the Muslims. This is Quraysh. And so they meet here and they're fighting, right? So now the hill, the Prophet ﷺ, the archers are here. Okay, so they're blocking this area. Because once the battle starts, the Muslims are going to be moving up and fighting. And the mushrikeen, they can't come from behind because of the archers that are here. So you have about 50 archers the Prophet ﷺ has 60 fighters. He put 50 of them up on this hill to defend so that if anybody tries cutting from behind them, that they would be blocked in this crevice. And again, if you, like I said, if you go to Medina now, obviously there's erosion and, and it's been a long time, but that's basically the gist of how the strategy was. When the battle began, the Muslims fought and even though the mushrikeen had come, 3,000 fighters and you know, came prepared with their horses and all of this and their armor. Actually, that's something I didn't mention as well. With regards to the armor, I mentioned the, the weapons that they used, the shields, the swords. But their armor itself could weigh um, like hundreds of pounds. And it's hot. They're like in desert. It's very hot. And they're wearing like helmets or they're, they're covering, covering themselves. And sometimes people would have like more detailed armor than the other. 
So some people's armor, you could only see their eyes, for example, and some people, they would just have a helmet and things like that. But because of the armor, it would weigh a person down. And as well, add to that, what kind of, um, what kind of food do they have available on the battlefield? You know, there's not much water on the battlefield. There's not much food. And that's why you see some companions of the Allah and In these battles, they'll have like dates, right? They're in their hands. That's what they're eating on the battlefield. They just have dates, maybe some sips of water, and they're, you know, fighting these battles. Okay. So the battle begins. Muslims have their flags. The Quraysh have their flags. The battle begins, and the Muslims begin winning the battle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ صَدَقَكُمُ اللَّهُ وَعَدَهُ إِذْ تَحُسُّونَهُمْ بِإِذْنِهِ Remember when Allah fulfilled His promise to you? إِذْ تَحُسُّونَهُمْ When you were like beating them by the permission of Allah. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, حَتَّى إِذَا فَشِلْتُمْ وَتَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ وَعَصَيْتُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا أَرَاكُمَا تُحِبُّونَ مِنْكُمْ مَنْ يُرِيدُ الدُّنْيَا وَمِنْكُمْ مَنْ يُرِيدُ الْآخِرَةِ The people that were on the hill, the Prophet ﷺ told them that no matter what, they shouldn't come down from the hill. No matter what. The statement of the Prophet ﷺ to them, that if you see us snatched into pieces by birds, don't leave this position of yours till I send for you. And if you see that we've defeated the enemy and trotted on them, do not desert your position till I send for you. So the Prophet ﷺ is saying that no matter what happens, whether we're killed and the birds have eaten us alive, don't leave the position until I tell you to leave it. Or if you see that we've beaten them and we've trampled them to the point where they don't exist anymore, don't leave until I send for you. So the statement was very clear to them, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. But they, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, in the beginning of the battle, the battle starts, the Muslims are fight, fighting at Hamza radiallahu anhu, Ali radiallahu anhu, key fighters, Zubair radiallahu anhu. The battle begins and the Muslims are victorious. The Battle of Uhud. So the Muslims are victorious. And so as you can see here, Muslims, they're, they're fighting. And now as this army is retreating, Quraysh, people come with very valuable items to the battlefield. Right? Like we said, there's swords, there's you know, food. A person might leave their horses, leave their armor, and just throw it down and run. So that, those are like the war spoils. War spoils. So now they're being defeated, the Quraysh are, are going in different directions and they're retreating and now the Muslims have won. The battle's over, the Muslims have won. And so the archers on the mountain, then they said, the battle's over, let's come down. And then there were people amongst them that said, no, the Prophet ﷺ said, don't leave until I send for you. They said, but the battle's over. And so this disagreement that they had on the mountain most of them, there were a few that stayed on the mountain because the Prophet told them don't leave. But those few that were there, they stayed there and the rest came down. So now, Khalid ibn Walid, anhu, who was on that side, Khalid ibn Walid, there's actually uh, someone else who was strategic in this turn of events in the Battle of Uhud, which was Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. There are two main fighters. Uh, two main leaders of the Mushrik army, the Quraysh army. One of them was Ikrimah, and the other one was Khalid. So Khalid sees that the archers have come down. Now the strategic position, Khalid has seen it from the beginning. He knows it's a strategic, they can't get through with 50 fighters, but now that there's just a few fighters, he tells Ikrimah that you take the Muslims from the front, and I'll take them from the back. And so with a band of fighters, Khalid brings these fighters from behind the Muslims, kills 
those Muslims who are left on the, on the hill, on the archer's mountain it's called, and hits the Muslims from the back. So imagine in the beginning, the battle's fighting, you're winning, and all of a sudden, arrows are being shot into your back. And the Muslims start going down. And then the Muslims turning around to see who's throwing the arrows and who's killing them from the back. Then Ikrim and his army start hitting them with arrows from the back as well. And so at that point, a chaos ensued. There was like chaos and confusion. Because where are they being hit from? So they're being hit from the back and they're hit from the front from all directions. And there was already this feeling that they had won the battle. And so people were already kind of dispersed. And in the midst of that, this took place. So in the confusion, just so you can understand the confusion, Muslims not knowing who is who, who is fighting, where are the swords coming from, where are the arrows coming from, with their swords, they're just basically fighting everybody. Everybody's on their own. So normally in a battlefield, everything is clear, right? Here's a lineup of people, and here's a lineup of people, and people just go forward fighting. And uh, if, you'll see, if you've seen like dramatizations again of, of this type of, of fighting, a lot of times, usually like the, the English army or something like that, they're all wearing red. You know what I mean? Like they all have the same color. And these days, they don't have that luxury of everybody wearing the same clothing. So sometimes, it's similar to like a pickup game. Do you guys call it pickup games? Pickup games? No, pickup. If you're playing a game of football, and, and you know, you divide, oh, here are the brothers on this side, the brothers on that side, right? And then how do you know on whose team is whose team? You don't really know because the clothing is very similar. You kind of like get this, you back up and try to think who's on some, some person's team. Sometimes you might have a sign, but in general, you're not really clear who's on whose side. And in a battle, when you're scared and something like this happens, you'll lose control of who's on your side and who's not. And so in that chaos happening, you had some Muslims killing other Muslims because of the confusion. So one of the people, um, to give you an example of that, that was killed by Muslims accidentally was the father of Hudayfa radiallahu anhu. Hudayfa radiallahu anhu's father, again, like you can't wait too long to decide whether someone is on your side or not. You'll be killed before that's over. And so they hit Hudayfa, saw the Muslims hitting his father, and his father's Muslim. And he was shouting to them, no, that's my father, that's my father. And by the time he had arrived at his father, they had killed him. Just so you understand what's going on in this chaos. They've lost the position of the Prophet as well. Meaning that now they don't know where the Prophet is on the battlefield. And then in this chaos, Mus'ab ibn Umayr spoke about earlier, one of the, you know, the first ambassador of the Prophet to Medina and had given da'wah to the people and so on, he was killed in the Battle of Uhud. At this point, they came down on Mus'ab ibn Umair and they killed him. Shaheed radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Mus'ab radiallahu anhu looked very similar. He's very handsome and very, looked very similar to the Prophet And so when they killed Mus'ab radiallahu anhu, the person who killed him thought he had killed Muhammad And so he started shouting out to everybody in the battlefield, Muhammad is dead that he had killed the Messenger of Allah Now you imagine the Ansar who promised to defend the Prophet They said that they would defend him and protect him. In a moment of disobedience, everything spun out of control. 
everything spun out of control to the point where they lost the Messenger of Allah And in fact, this is in Sahih Bukhari, there was one of the chiefs of the Ansar whom the Prophet you know, sent someone to go and talk to him. He was like on the battlefield. When the person went to him, he was like, in the, he, he said, the Prophet sends his salam and, and he asks, you know, Kayfa tajiduk, how are you feeling? And, and that person said, it's in Sahih Bukhari, he said, I find myself closer to paradise. And then, and then he said, you know, return my salam to the Prophet And then he said, give my salam to the Ansar and tell them that they'll have no excuse in front of Allah if any one of them is still breathing while the Messenger of Allah وسلم, has gone to the hereafter before them. None of them will have any excuse. And that was the attitude of the Ansar that nobody is going to let the Prophet وسلم, go to the hereafter before them. They will all go to the hereafter first before the Prophet and here in the battle they've lost the Prophet So now this impact, we know that the Prophet that was Mus'ab ibn Umar who was killed. In hindsight we know. But the companions didn't know that he wasn't actually dead. They didn't know this. So the impact of the death is a real impact. So the companions they responded to this in different ways. A group of them were so intensely hurt by the news that they just stopped fighting. They were like paralyzed. They just sat down and they couldn't do anything. Another group of them said the Prophet had been killed. They walked away from the battlefield. They went back to Medina. They left the, they left the battlefield and returned to Medina. And then there was a group of the fighters who, like I said, their attitude was that they would die for what the Prophet ﷺ died for. Anas ibn al-Nadr was one of those people. Anas ibn al-Nadr in the battlefield, he, was, he saw some people sitting down. So he's fighting and then he sees some of the companions sitting down. Just sitting down in a battlefield. So he said to them, why are you sitting like that? They said in response, haven't you heard the news? The Messenger of Allah ﷺ is dead. And so his response, this is immediate reaction. Right? No time to think about it. It's coming from his heart. He said to them, then why are you sitting down? Get up and die for what he died for. And so he turns. He made a statement. Right? This is Sa'd ibn Mu'adh who's narrating what he said. He calls out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, oh Allah. He said, I have nothing to do with what these people did. Meaning the mushrikeen. And he's like, you know, I have nothing to do with what they, they, they did, meaning killing your messenger. Because that's a huge sin. You're going to be destroyed for that. I have nothing to do with what they did. And he said, and oh Allah, I ask your forgiveness for what these people did. And that was those sahaba who left the battlefield. And then he stepped forward and Sa'd ibn Mu'adh asks him, he's like, what are you going to do? And then Anas made the statement. He said, al-jannatu wa rabbun nadr. He said, by the by the Lord of my father, ajidu rihaha dun uhud. He said, by the Lord of my father, I can smell the fragrance of Jannah coming from the direction of Uhud. And so between him, between him and Uhud was the Quraysh army. So he's like, on the other side of that, I can smell, I can smell Jannah. And I even asked the Shaykh, I was like, I was like, Shaykh, I said, did he really smell the fragrance of Jannah? Did he really smell it? And the Shaykh was saying that 
He said, there's no other proof that he did not smell it. And he swore by Allah that he could smell it. He swore by Allah. This is what I call the Iman Rush zone. Right? When someone gets into the zone. And then he began fighting. Again, after this point, the narration is Sa'd ibn Mu'az's narration. He, said, he told the Prophet ﷺ afterwards, he said, Ya Rasulullah, I couldn't fight the way Ennis was fighting. He's like, no human being fights like that. That's not human the way he fought. Anas, radiallahu anhu, Anas ibn Nadr, he had so many wounds. And imagine, like, if you get cut, you back up. That's just human nature. You get cut, you back up. He had 80 wounds. He had 80 cuts in his body. And he's the companion, radiallahu anhu, that they said that they could not distinguish what he looked like after that except for a mark on his finger. His sister said that, oh, because of this mark on his finger, this is my brother. That's it. Nothing else. His whole body had been cut up during that. The people thought the Prophet was killed. This is a huge, courageous move of the Prophet showing you the courage and the strength of the Prophet. He called out in the battlefield, He said, Come to me, O servants of Allah, I'm the Messenger of Allah. This is a critical point. I want you to realize this because a lot of Muslims, when the going gets tough, they go into a shell. Correct? They, what we were talking about earlier, when everything is getting difficult and whatnot, they close the curtain, they shut down, they put up tinted windows and, and so on and so forth, and you don't want to see me. If you expose yourself, then what will they do to you? They'll eat you alive. Right, so if, imagine these days if Muslims go on TV and actually they're a good practicing Muslim, what will the media do to them? They'll eat them alive. They're like, now we have someone to, we actually rip them apart. And so the Prophet ﷺ making this statement, there comes a point where you have to face the heat for a greater good and that is unifying the believers in this battle of Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ called the believers, yet that call is heard by both the Muslims and the non-Muslims. Is heard by the Muslims in the Quraysh army. And so they then realized that they had not killed the Prophet And so the intensity of the battle came directly upon the Prophet And at the same time, the Muslims were unified. They had gathered once again. There was about nine people surrounding the Prophet Seven of them were from the Ansar. Seven of them were from the Ansar. And there was even a woman who was defending the Prophet ﷺ. Her name was Nusayba. Nusayba al-Maziniyya, she was amongst those of the few people who were surrounding the Prophet ﷺ and defending him. And so, Nusayba, and so the companions that were surrounding the Prophet ﷺ, you had like Abu Bakr, you had Umar, you had Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, these are of the people that surrounded the Prophet ﷺ. And of the things that they were doing to the Prophet ﷺ, obviously they're trying to hit him with their swords. And they did hit the Prophet ﷺ. One of the hits of the sword came down on his shoulder and like slammed down on the shoulder of the Prophet ﷺ. In another hit, they took a rock, they took a rock, and they threw it at the face of the Prophet ﷺ. So he has armor that's covering his face, but from the smash of the rock, it shattered the helmet and the helmet pierced into the cheek of the Prophet ﷺ and broke through to his teeth. ﷺ. Like cut through his face and broke through his teeth from the rock. 
and the Prophet ﷺ fell dizzy in the attack that was on him, they, the companions of the Ansar and the that, that small group was defending the Prophet ﷺ, and the mushrikeen couldn't get through that line. So they would back up and they started throwing arrows up into that circle. So the arrows, the Muslims can defend, you know, the, the swords, the spears, stuff like that. The arrows they can't defend. The arrows are coming up and down and they're landing. They're trying to land them in and to kill the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ slipped. There was some people of the munafiqeen had actually dug like holes that during the battle people would fall in these holes and if they fell, once you fall, you've lost your balance, you'll be killed. So the Prophet ﷺ fell in one of these holes and they started throwing arrows down and Abu Dujana anhu, in defense of the Prophet ﷺ, he got on top of the Prophet ﷺ covered him with his own body so that the arrows would go into his back. Remember Abu Bakr anhu in the hijrah when he was circling the Prophet that's the intention. That if anything, that with their own bodies that they were defending the Prophet It was at this moment, you know, in, in, this, in this state, the Prophet made that famous statement where he said, Allahumma ghfir li qawmi fa innahum la ya'lamun. Imagine in this type of fear and, and difficulty and companions being killed, the Prophet ﷺ said, Oh Allah, forgive my people, for they don't know what they're doing. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could destroy all of them, and that's not what the Prophet ﷺ wants. Oh Allah, forgive them, for they do not know. Of the companions anhum, during this, um, during this chaos, as this fight was going on, there was a person in the battlefield who had come with the mission to only kill one person. His mission was to kill the uncle of the Prophet And that was Wahshi. Wahshi's intention during this battle was to only kill the uncle. Hind, which, who was the wife of Abu Sufyan, Abu Sufyan is like the leader of the army. And you, you see even the Battle of Badr, you're not really hearing of Abu Sufyan. There was Utbah, there was Al-Walid, all these people. They were killed in Badr. Now Abu Sufyan's coming. And Hind's uncle was killed in Badr. So she, Wahshi, she made him a promise that if he kills Hamza, Hamza killed her uncle. If, she, if he kills Hamza, then he'll be freed. So Wahshi says that, you know, that was his only. He didn't come there to kill anybody except Hamza. So during this chaos, as everybody was like running in different directions, Wahshi saw his opportunity. And Hamza radiallahu anhu is known as Sayyid al-Shuhada. He believed in the Prophet ﷺ when so many of his uncles didn't believe in the Prophet ﷺ. So many people abandoned the Prophet ﷺ. Hamza ﷺ believed in him. Hamza ﷺ migrated to Medina with the Prophet ﷺ. And he didn't have family, didn't have all of this. He came to Medina to be with the Prophet ﷺ and defend him. And now in the Battle of Uhud, Wahshi gets his opportunity. Wahshi doesn't miss. Wahshi speared Hamza from a distance and the spear went through his body. They say that Hamza radiallahu anhu, he then you know, turned to Wahshi and started charging him. And, but, and Wahshi is saying that, you know, I saw death coming to me. But before he arrived at Wahshi, he fell down, Shaheed radiallahu ta'ala anhu. In fact, he's known as Sayyid al-Shuhada, like the, the master, the prince of all of the shaheeds, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa not knowing about what happened to Hamza radiallahu anhu and the situation, they're attacking the Prophet they started retreating up into, um, into the, the mountain of Uhud. 
And there's up on like the hill, there's like a cave there with the Prophet like retreated into. But now they're coming up behind them and they're fighting them still. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas there's other people, Talha, an example of the, the companions. Talha in defense of the Prophet fought so hard. And even like his, his arm became limp from the way he defended the Prophet The Prophet said afterwards that whoever wishes to see a shaheed who's alive and is still walking, around should look at Talha. Because of the way he defended the Prophet ﷺ, he should be dead. He didn't die. But the way he defended the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Uhud, Prophet ﷺ, his nickname was like the Living Shaheed. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas his nickname was Al-Asad, the Lion. And Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas in the Battle of Uhud, the Prophet ﷺ told him to fend them off with his spear, like push them back. And Sa'ad radiallahu is saying to the Prophet I'm only one person. You know how, you, again, in those dramatizations, they show one person fighting an entire army and everybody thinks they're so courageous, but you realize it's just a dramatization. It's not real. Sa'ad radiallahu, this is an example. He's going to fight the whole army by himself. And so he's like, I'm only one person. What can I do, Ya Rasulullah? And the Prophet made a statement to him. Sa'ad radiallahu never forgets that statement. It's a statement, whenever you see this statement, they'll say to, each, to the Prophet they'll say, may my mother and father be ransomed for your sake. Right? Fidaka abi wa ummi. Fidaka abi wa ummi means, like let's say, if you're a prisoner of war, I would be willing to trade my mother and my father so that you, would, that you could be safe. That's what the statement means. So they would say that very often to the Prophet Fidaka abi wa ummi. May my mother and father be ransomed for your sake. The Prophet ﷺ never said that to anybody. He never made that statement, that high-level statement to anybody except Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas in this battle of Uhud. He said to him, Irmi ya Sa'adu irmi fidaka abi wa ummi. He said, throw your spear, O Sa'ad, throw your spear. May my mother and father be ransomed for your sake. It's a statement, like I said, the Prophet ﷺ never said to anybody. Obviously, how excited Sa'ad radiallahu anhu would get to have such a, a beautiful and amazing statement. Sa'ad radiallahu anhu gears up and throws his spear and he kills one of the mushrikeen. He pulls back and he throws another spear and he kills them. Gro- throw, uh, pulls back and throws a spear and they're giving the spears to Sa'ad radiallahu anhu. He's the best shot and every time he throws a spear, he does not miss. He's hitting one of them with every shot that he throws. And because of the way he fought, the way Talha fought, and the others fought, the Mushrikeen, the Quraysh army, they backed up. And the Prophet and the Muslims were able to move up the mountain into like a safer zone. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when they're at the mountain in this, in this rest, there's kind of like a moment of calm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is in Surah Al-Imran, verse 154. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, after this, the companions, radiallahu anhum, they rested on the top of, the, of Mount Uhud. So again, after all that happened, from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah brings peace to them, and they dozed off and they rested for a bit on top of the mountain of Uhud. Here, Abu Sufyan, Abu Sufyan is, now the Muslims are up on the mountain of Uhud, and he's at the bottom, there's this conversation between him and the Muslims. And he says, Afikum Muhammad, is Muhammad amongst you? 
And the Prophet said, don't answer him. And then he said, Afikum Abu Quhafa, meaning like Abu Bakr. And the Prophet said, don't answer him. And then he said, Afikum Umar. And the Prophet said, don't answer him. So he's just shouting out and nobody's saying anything. And so sometimes you realize that even, you know, when, when there's like these enemies of Allah, sometimes the best response is no response. And then Abu Sufyan said, A'la hubul. He said, may hubul, their idol, you know, may it be like most high, most glorious. Their idol. They have hubul, they have lat, and they have uzza. These are like their idols, right? And then, and the Prophet ﷺ said, won't you respond to him? And they said, what should we say? And the Prophet ﷺ said, say to him, Allahu a'la wa ajal. That Allah is, and then they shouted back at him from the mountain, that Allah is most high and most glorious. More high, more glorious than what you've, you know, claimed. And then Abu Sufyan said, لَنَا الْعُزَّةِ وَلَا عُزَّةِ لَكُمْ That we have uzza and you don't have any uzza. Uzza is their idol. And the Prophet ﷺ said, answer him. They said, what should we say? And then the Prophet ﷺ told them, they responded saying, Allahu mawlana wa la mawla lakum. That Allah is our master and you have no master. And then Abu Sufyan called out, he said, Yawmun biyawm. He said, a day for a day. To you is better and for, to us is Uhud. And the Prophet ﷺ said, answer him. They said, what should we say? And he told them and they responded. He said, Laysu sawa. That it's not the same. It's not equal. فَقَتْلَانَا فِي الْجَنَّةِ وَقَتْلَاكُمْ فِي النَّارِ that those who die amongst us will be in paradise. And those who die amongst you will be in hellfire. And then Abu Sufyan told them that when you come down, he said, when you come down from the mountain, you're going to see a mutilation. Your companions have been mutilated. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ actually forbade that. It's haram for a Muslim to do that. If in a battlefield, from the etiquettes of a Muslim fighting, a Muslim does not mutilate a body. And so Abu Sufyan said that when you come down, you're going to find mutilation. He said, I have not commanded it, nor does it bother me that they've been mutilated. And so they know when they come down, their, their brothers have been mutilated on the battlefield. And of those people, when the Prophet ﷺ did come down, he's looking at who had been killed, shaheed in the battle of Uhud, and then he stood on the body of Hamza radiallahu anhu. He said, the Prophet ﷺ, I've said, I've never stood in a more sadder position than the day I've stood over the body of Hamza radiallahu Hamza radiallahu after Wahshi had killed him, Hind had come to him and had like cut off his ears, had cut off his nose, had opened up his stomach, had taken out his liver. She had made a promise that she was going to eat from his liver. And like from his intestines, she had made like a necklace and so on and so forth. And so... Even the Prophet ﷺ, the relative of Hamza, the Prophet ﷺ told her like, to back away and not come here. So she wouldn't see the scene of what they did to Hamza. Different things about the battlefield. In Surah Al-Imran, verse 169, Allah subhanahu wa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and don't consider those who've died in the path of Allah as dead. But rather they're alive with their Lord being well provided for. And you'll notice that even I've tried to be careful not to say that they died or they were killed. You'll hear me say, obviously they were killed, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't consider them dead. Rather they're alive. And so I've been careful to say that shaheed, 
right, to, to use the word shaheed. Now, as from the etiquettes of shaheed, Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, has a chapter in Sahih Bukhari called Bab la yuqalu funanun shaheed, right? That a chapter, a person shouldn't be called shaheed. So now in our times, Muslims will be fighting and this and that, and you might say, oh, so-and-so, the shaheed. It's actually not permissible to say that because Allah only knows best if they died as a shaheed. So what you would say, and, and that's so you're maintaining your respect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the proper etiquettes, you would say shaheed insha'Allah. And you never just say so-and-so is shaheed. Obviously the companions, we know they're shaheed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it and, and that's all like done. But afterwards, for other than the companions, ta'ala anhum, someone says shaheed, you would respond by saying shaheed insha'Allah. Like they're saying, this is a martyr, and you're saying a martyr insha'Allah. Or you'd say the martyr insha'Allah so-and-so. So you'd say, martyr, shaheed, insha'Allah. Mus'ab ibn Umair, radiallahu anhu, Abdurrahman ibn Awf was very wealthy, and later on, you know, when, when Islam became very successful and they had a lot of wealth and so on and so forth, he'd cry, and he said that there were people that were better than us, like Hamza and Mus'ab ibn Umair. He said, by Allah, on the, on the day of Uhud, when they were burying them, he said, we didn't have enough cloth to cover their entire body, right? He said, if we covered their head, their feet would show. And if we covered their feet, their head would show. And he said, and by Allah, they were better than us. But yet they didn't even have the cloth to cover them. And the Prophet ﷺ said, to cover their face, even though their feet would still be showing. They weren't able to have, to have even the full garment. The companions, radiallahu anhu, and then Abu Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he would cry and he wouldn't eat his food. He wouldn't eat the food that he had because of you know, what the people before us, what they, had been, what they had gone through, and they never ate food like this. And they never had the pleasures that we had. But yet this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took, took, them, took, him, uh, took them back to him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. There were, there was, um, actually this is in the Battle of Badr. In the Battle of Badr, very few companions were killed shaheed in the Battle of Badr. But one of the companions was killed shaheed. His mother came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and she said to the Prophet ﷺ, tell me where is my son? Because if he's in paradise, then you know, I'll be so happy and this and that. But, she, but if he's in hellfire, then Allah will see what I'll do. And so it was there um, before, and obviously this is forbidden before, but they would wail over the dead. Right? If someone died, they would cry and cry and they would wail over the dead for a very long period of time. And this is forbidden in Islam. The forbiddens came later. But she's saying to the Prophet ﷺ, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cry for his death if he's not in paradise. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to her, Wayhaki. There's, there's actually in Arabic, you can see Waylaki or, or Waylak or Wayhak. Waylak is like woe to you and Wayhak is, is like saying woe to you but like in a positive way without saying like woe to you. So he said, Wayhaki, he said, you know, Ahabilti, you know, have you gone crazy? He said, Jannah isn't one Jannah, Al Jannah to Jannat. He said, Jannah is multiple levels, and your son is in the highest level of Jannah. Your son is in the highest level of Jannah. Jannah to Firdaus. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about <clears throat> the battle of, of Uhud, everybody claims that they want to die Shaheed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ تَمَنَّوْهُ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ تَلْقَوْ That indeed you desired it before you actually met it. Before the death came to you, everybody is saying, we want to die shaheed, we want to go in the battlefield, we want to do this. But normally what people want is they want everything good to happen to them. 
And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wala qadra that indeed you saw it. Wa antum tandurun. Right? And of the of the benefits that these companions radiallahu anhum, that they were the best of people, and so they died the best of deaths. And so they would return back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as shuhada. So in order to die shaheed, you actually have to be killed shaheed. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala returned them back to him as shuhada. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in, in the battle of Uhud, the, the famous verse, if you can uh, turn on the, this famous verse, which is Qawru Azza wa Jal, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُلِ أَفَإِمَّا تَأَوْقُتِلًا قَلَبْتُمْ عَلَىٰ أَعْقَابِكُمْ وَمَنْ يَنْقَلِبْ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ فَلَنْ يَضُرَّ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا وَسَيَجْزِ اللَّهُ الشَّاكِنِينَ Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Muhammad is nothing more than a messenger. Messengers came before him. أَفَإِمَّا If he dies or is killed, will you turn your backs and heels and forsake Islam? وَمَنْ يَنْقَلِبْ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ And for whoever turns their backs, whoever you know, turns their heels, فَلَنْ يَضُرَّ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا They'll harm Allah in no way. وَسَيَجْزِ اللَّهُ الشَّاكِنِينَ And Allah will soon reward the grateful ones for being firm and striving for His deen. This verse, the companions learned this and they had experienced this was like a pre-trial, a test that they had experienced and felt the impact of what it's like to experience the death of the Prophet And there will become another time where this verse will come up, and that is on the death of the Prophet for real, that he is a messenger. And messengers have come before him. After the Battle of Uhud, different lessons that we learned from the Battle of Uhud, the Prophet commanded, uh, like what they were doing is they were taking the, the bodies of the shuhada and they were um, transporting it to Baqiya. Baqiya is the graveyard of Medina. Baqiya is the name of the graveyard in Medina and there's like 20,000 companions buried there in Medina. So it's a huge, it's a most blessed grave, right? And the Prophet said, whoever has the ability to die in Medina should do so. For I'll um, be a shafi'ah, I'll intercede for those who die in Medina. Right? So you'll all, how many people, we've said that before. How many people have like a mother or a grandmother that wants to die in Medina? How many people have that? <laughs> so there's those who know about the hadith, they're all like, you know, make dua. I'm like, are you going to go for hajj and try to kill yourself in hajj? <laughs> That's what you're trying to do. That's why they go to the jamarat at the time and stuff like that. <laughs> this, is, this is Medina. It's, it's a side tangent, but I, I just need to say it. There is a sister. She's, uh, she's French-Canadian, right? French-Canadian, converted to Islam. She, um, and she's very old. She's very old. You're talking about like she's in her 60s. And she used to, uh, when she converted to Islam, she, I think she converted like in her late 50s. And she's now in her 60s. She translated books in French and Islamic books, doing da'wah. And she came for hajj. And there was a brother from Montreal. And he was telling me, he's like, you know this lady? He said she converted to Islam in her old age. And she's, you know, she translates the most books and she does so much dawah, um, French-Canadian. From Canada, she came, she went for hajj, she became very ill, I guess she was lost and so on and so forth. When I saw her in hajj time, you know, she was sick and so on. And then later this brother came and told me that when she, they went to Medina afterwards, after hajj they went to Medina, from Mecca to Medina. 
and she became very sick when she arrived in Medina. She went to the hospital, and she was sick so long in the hospital that the group had to leave, and she was there being nursed in the hospital, and she passed away in Medina. And he was saying that, you know, she was buried in Baqiyah. She was buried in the graveyard of the Muslims that we're talking about here in Medina. And I thought to myself, subhanAllah, Allah took her from Canada, took her from that kufr that she was in before, guided her to Islam, brought her all the way to Medina. Everybody's making these du'as, oh Allah, let me die in Medina and so on. Brought her to Medina and that's where she's buried and that's where she died. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept her. Here in Medina, the Prophet there are two graveyards in Medina. One is Baqiyah and the other one is the graveyard at Uhud. So the Prophet said, as people were taking these bodies and taking them to the graveyard in Medina, Baqiyah, the Prophet ordered them to return the bodies back to Uhud. Because the shaheed is buried where they die. Where they've been killed, shaheed, that's where they're buried. And on top of that, these are rulings according to like the shuhada, that you do not wash their bodies. You're not washing their bodies. Instead, the Prophet ﷺ said that they will be resurrected with the blood that they were killed with. The Prophet ﷺ said the color will be the color of blood and the smell will be the smell of musk. Because once this blood is, is spilled, it's been spilled for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's the honor of the shaheed that the blood was spilled like this. And so the Prophet ﷺ, there was these, the shuhada, over 70 companions of the Prophet ﷺ were killed shaheed in the Battle of Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ, they were brought back, and there's a graveyard, like I said, in, in Uhud till today. And that's really, when you go to visit Uhud, that's what you're visiting. You're visiting the graves and saying salam, as the Prophet ﷺ used to visit those graves and say salam to those people in the graves. He buried them, ﷺ, um, two per grave. Two per grave. Because there's a lot of bodies. And so they have to dig up these graves. So two per grave. And who do you put in first? The Prophet ﷺ would say, see which amongst them memorized more Qur'an. And the one that memorized more Qur'an would go in first. And so even, they're both shuhada, they're both shuhada, but yet because of the memorization of Qur'an, even amongst the shuhada, there's still an extra virtue for those who memorized more Qur'an. An encouragement, inshallah ta'ala, for you to memorize more Qur'an and be more focused on the Qur'an. It's a virtue in this life and in the hereafter. The next day, the Prophet So the Muslims, 70 had been killed and they're being nursed and so on and so forth. The next day, the Prophet sent a message that everybody who participated in the battle of Uhud yesterday, gear up and put your armor back on. We're going to fight again. Now you imagine when you've had a hard day, how how tired you are that you know now you're like oh I just I need a weekend I need a break I need a one week rest or I need a one month rest or so on and so forth the Prophet ﷺ told all of them to get back up put your armor back on and the Prophet ﷺ said that no one who had not, anybody that had not taken um, part in the battle yesterday in Uhud they were not allowed to join the second army so it was only from amongst the 600 that were there, only those people minus the 70 companions who had been killed, shaheed, and then minus those who were not physically able to join. Those are the only people the Prophet ﷺ was taking with him. And what were they doing? They're going to chase the Kafir army. They're going to chase them and they're going to fight them again. It's part two of the Battle of Uhud. It continues. Now... And, and we said someone like Nusayba radiallahu anha who had defended the Prophet sallallahu even she was getting up to gear up to be with the Prophet sallallahu again. 
And because of the wound, she was hit 13 times, strikes by the sword, that she wasn't able, from her cuts and her wounds, she wasn't able to get up and join the Prophet So these companions, they went out, and they went to a place called Hamra al-Asad. This is known as the Battle of Hamra al-Asad. Hamra al-Asad. It's an area. When the Mushrik army, so the Mushrik army is going back to Mecca, right? So they're going back to Mecca. And then on the way to Mecca, it's like the next day, they're sitting amongst themselves. They're like, what did we actually achieve? They say, the Prophet is still alive. Abu Bakr is still alive. Umar is still alive. You know, we killed a few of them. But other than that, we didn't take anything from them. And basically, they didn't achieve anything. And so they said to themselves, let's go back and fight again. They're weak now. We'll never get them in a weaker position. Let's go back and fight them and actually finish them off. But then they heard that the Prophet was chasing them. And they're like, whoa, if they're chasing us, that must mean that they're really strong. So let's forget going back and and fighting them. So they aborted their mission and they just ran away. And the Prophet ﷺ stood in Hamra al-Asad in that area so that everybody would know that that honor and nobility remains to the Muslims. That the Quraysh had walked away and had ran away from them and they were not ready for this second part of the Battle of Uhud. And that's why if you've ever been to like a Sirah class or a Sunday school or something like that and you might have been confused, did the Muslims actually lose or did they win in the Battle of Uhud? And that's why... So you understand the reason there's like this confusion is because even though they'd taken a major hit in Uhud, the end of it was the Prophet ﷺ going and challenging the Quraysh the next day when the army came out and they did not take on that challenge. And so that loss was turned into like a victory. Obviously they had suffered a lot, but it was turned into a victory because of that.